Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Everyone thinks archaeologists do excavation as their primary means of research. Excavation is maybe 10% of what we actually do in the field. It's strike, striking and iconic, and so it's you know more eye-catching than other things, but it's really a, a minority of what we end up doing. Um, so let's say you're all archaeologists and you're coming into a new area that you need to do a study of. You're going to start at the broadest scale, and that's called reconnaissance. Reconnaissance is simply a very uh, superficial sort of look at a region. Um, so it's uh, the broadest scale, uh, the most macro scale, the zoomed out, most zoomed out look we take at the landscape. Um, before we even get to the landscape, we do something called documentary recons, kind of cheating to put it under this category, but really it's background research. We go to the library, we go online uh, to journal sources, we go and do straight up research to figure out what's been done in this area, what sorts of sites we can expect to find, what sorts of materials we can expect to find. Um, do we already know that there are some sites in this area? what culture, what timeline, all these things, whatever we can get out of the library uh, or documentary resources, um, previous site reports, anywhere that we can find information, we'll go there first because we don't want to just show up in a random spot and start walking around. That would be a waste of time. Uh, we are looking at an image of Heinrich Schliemann on the, on the left, this older German gentleman. He uh, took, did anyone ever read the Iliad or Homer, right, in high school maybe? Um, he took the Battle of Troy as written in what was thought to be myth as Sorry, truth. I missed that. Sorry. Siri, Siri's, uh, <laughs> all right, Siri. Um, <laughs> sorry, that reminds me to turn my phone volume off. Oh, it is, never mind, okay. Um, so Heinrich Schliemann, like I said, uh, he took the su supposed myth of Troy and said, all right, what if this was true? I'm going to look for a place in this approximate area with two different streams and all these different things. And he was able to find a tell, which is just um, a piled up uh, town uh, that has built sediment over many, many, many generations. And so it builds up a kind of a hill on the landscape. It's called a tell, T-E-L-L. -L. Um, and he excavated this tell and actually ended up finding Troy. And, proving that Troy actually did exist, and now whether or not things have happened exactly as they did in the, um, in the ancient uh, myths, that's hard to tell. But there was a town, and it does appear to have, have been sacked. Um, another type of documentary or literature-based research that I should mention here is um, biblical archaeology. So archaeologists try and find out what's there without preconceived notions. And I, it's unfair to say that we're completely unbiased and we're going out there with unpreconceived, like completely blank slates. That's, we have an idea, we do background research. Oh, I know I'm gonna find the Maya in the Yucatan Peninsula because that's 
that's what you're going to find there. However, there's a difference between doing archaeology on biblical times and places and a type of archaeology that is going out specifically to prove the Bible happened exactly as it's said in the Bible, like people who go and look for um, Noah's Ark, uh, things like that. There's a, a bit of a disjunct there between scientific archaeology and people that use archaeological principles to try and prove something that is faith-based and not... Uh, if it's there, it's there. That's how we as an archaeologist, you know, if someone actually finds Noah's Ark and it's there and it's irrefutable and it's carved on there in Hebrew or whatever, Noah's boat or whatever, if it's irrefutable, it's irrefutable. But if it's going out with an a priori thing that you're trying to prove, you know, if you're looking, if you're looking for fire, everything looks like smoke, basically. So um, we have to be careful in our documentary evidence. We have to evaluate the source and say, okay, is this a reporting source that's kind of uh, neutral, or is this a, a self-interested report, right? So we have to do a little bit of vetting in the documents we use. We can't just adopt everything as 100% as, um, true all the time. So then when we actually go out to do recon, recon used to be a preliminary step. It was kind of just something you did in the beginning leading up to uh, more intense archaeological study, but recon we just call it recon for short. Recon has become a field or a practice within itself because early on in archaeology, people were interested in the big cities and the big you know, buildings and all the really shiny stuff and the burials and all that. But as it has matured as a discipline, archaeology has spread out and become more democratic, if you like, and has become more interested in the you know, John or Jane Q, every person of the past. And so looking at recon, we're getting not just the temple districts or the, you know, where the elites lived, but we're getting rural populations for once. We're getting um, people who lived in, I guess, the equivalent of suburbs, not that they really existed in the way that we consider them today. Um, so recon is a way to look at how did this society use the entire landscape, not just where the elites lived and built their tombs, etc. Recon can be a lot of fun. Uh, this is my friend Dan. He is a retired uh, landscaper from Ohio who moved down to Mexico to be uh, a shovel bum, basically, and he helped me uh, through my dissertation and on another friend's dissertation. And other, he's just, he goes and volunteers on all these projects. And so one day we were out looking for a site doing recon because we knew it was in the area. You can see here, there's a mound over there. This is the center mound of the site. And, you know, we were doing a hard targeted recon to actually find a site, so we are walking through quicksand. Like when you walked on it, you could feel it like sink and stuff. That's why we have big sticks. And also um, this grass that looks like you can just walk over this field is actually like this deep. Um, so, you know, it can be fun and, you know, that whole sense of exploration and whatever, and it's a lot of, can be exciting. Um, a colleague of mine did much of his dissertation just uh, on recon where he made a survey of all the caves around Chichen Itza and then um, the next year went into those caves and documented them and then did some excavation in them but primarily did a recon based dissertation so it is a pretty full-fledged um, sort of thing. It is unsystematic. Recon often relies on prior knowledge of people in the area 
For example, it's really common, uh, at least in the Maya area, for people who are doing a large survey or a large re reconnaissance, they'll drive into the middle of the nearest town and say, hey, does anyone know where there's some mounds or whatever the local name for these things is? Does anyone know where there are some in the, in the area? And, you know, guys who are usually it's like older retired guys who are, you know, uh, sitting around with not much to do. Like, oh, yeah, I know where a whole bunch of them are. I'll, I'll take you there. Let's go. And they'll just like drop what they're doing. And it's, at least in Mexico, it's a much more of a relaxed schedule atmosphere. Um, yeah, let's go, you know, whatever. And uh, sometimes you pay, sometimes you don't. It really depends. Sometimes you buy a meal, whatever. But that depends on someone knowing it's there, right? So it's not very systematic. It's not like we're combing over every inch. We're going where things uh, are often already known to the local folks, and we're going there to record them for, um, for people outside the local area. Some, sometimes we use aerial photography. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But one thing we really look for is seasonal differences. So it might be unfortunate that you're in a uh, area that you're studying only one season because sometimes, like here, you can see uh, between the dry season and the wet season, you can already see a whole bunch of things popping up in this aerial picture of a field. Whereas in the wet season, it, they might not be as um, prevalent or common or easy to see. And so you really have to do, take that into account when you're doing recon. Seasonal differences can really uh, give you a bit of a problem. Um, I have. So I want to watch community. Uh, da, 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 recon. Do I have recon survey? Oh yeah, I'll show you a survey video in a little bit. I don't actually have a recon video. I don't know why I have that marked. Oops. Okay. Um, we can use sampling strategies. Um, if we need a representative sample. So we want to say, okay, we're looking at a 10 kilometer by 10 kilometer square of wherever. It could be anywhere in the world, in the, you know, northern Wisconsin, whatever, it doesn't matter. We want to know how likely are we to find a site in any one location. We could do different sampling strategies, and then we could go to zones on the grid that are demarcated with completely random dots, or we could do uh, what's called systematic where we say you know, every third or every second one down those lines, or um, there are different things called like stratified random sampling, like within this square we're going to go to one place. With the, right? So there are many different sampling strategies. And basically, what you need to know about sampling strategies are they allow us to have a more robust uh, discussion about what's there. If I just show up in an area and I drive around and ask people if they know where archaeological remains are, I'm only going to get uh, a small subset and a completely random subset of what's there. It's kind of like um, there's an analogy to a, a drunk who's walking out to his car and he drops his keys in the parking lot, but the only place he's going to look for him is under the, uh, the street lights where he can see. If your keys aren't in that street light, you're, I don't know why you're the drunk in that scenario, but uh, the, the drunk in that scenario is never going to find their keys if they're outside of that circle, right? So same thing with our sampling strategies. Sometimes we need to use randomization to force ourselves to go to places we might not otherwise. 
and that gives us a more representative sample that we can say, okay, 10% of the landscape is covered with archaeological sites, or 5%. We can actually say that if we've done sampling strategies. We can't necessarily say it if, uh, if not. Uh, the major goals, I guess, if you had to define goals of reconnaissance, are to define boundaries of survey regions. So um, reconnaissance, usually you'll look for the edges or the, uh, what you're going to call the edges of your survey or of your um, interest area, so you can define boundaries. Um, it'll also direct you where to go next. So you do a recon of a large area and you say, okay, there's four sites that we found. We're going to do more work around these sites, right? So it helps you narrow down your field. And it can give you, start, it can start to get your foot in the door really to understand what are the natural and cultural features you're going to be dealing with. It gets you introduced to the area. Aerial reconnaissance. Uh, is exactly what it sounds like, um, taking pictures or other sorts of images from the air. Uh, this started out in the early 1900s because, right, we didn't have airplanes until, was it 1903? Does anyone know? Maybe Siri knows. Uh, I think it's 1903. Uh, doesn't really matter. But the early 1900s, people, as soon as people started flying in regular airplanes that were <laughs> dependable, uh, people would start taking pictures, right? This, um, exploded after World War I when they had a major um, explosion of, <laughs> World War I explosion, right, of uh, imaging technology that was originally military. Actually, a lot of archaeology remote sensing, which is what we're going to be talking about, um, comes from military applications because we as archaeologists, we can't pay to develop things like, well, back then, you know, cutting edge aerial photography or um, airborne radar or the different things we're going to talk about, we can't pay to develop those because number one, most archaeologists don't have the physics background to do that, but number two, there are people better equipped to it to do it, like the military, because it's useful for them, and eventually even like a GPS was a military thing and is now one of the most important tools we use as archaeologists when we're doing reconnaissance and survey. Um, there are two different types of photos that we look at when we're doing aerial reconnaissance. There's um, an oblique photo. An oblique photo, like this one here in the lower left, is from the side. I don't know if you use Google Maps or um, Google Earth very much, but now, for some reason, when you zoom down in close, at the end, you, know, you start with a plan view, which is what this is, which is straight above, looking down. And as you zoom in, then it tips you, you look kind of like sideways to look at it from an oblique view. Those are the two views we use, and they're for different things. A plan view or a planimetric view from straight above, you could draw a map over it. You could use it for measuring distances between things, but it doesn't show you much in the way of um, vertical relief. An oblique photo from the side, especially if you catch it in the morning or the evening when there's a good harsh side light from the sun setting or rising, you can get a good idea of the relief. It's more of a... Uh, uh, it gives you a, more of a sense as a human being of what this looks like, whereas the, the planimetric or the, the plan view, the bird's eye view, is usually more useful on a technical, from a technical standpoint. MPS, Google Earth. Oh, yeah. Speaking of this, I don't know if any of you saw this in the news. Um, National 
geographic. Um, Citizens Archaeology Google. Let's see if that turns it up. Yes. Um, so there, here we go. The space archaeologist wants your help to fight looting. Um, so it's not an archaeologist of space because there's no humans in space, so there's no archaeology to be done. Um, so basically, this uh, archaeology from space point of view. Um, this person, there are, um, she's setting up a Google Earth driven map, uh, map program where you can go in and you can look at and compare images because we can't just run these through a, a filter or some sort of mechanical computerized filter because these sorts of visual images are really difficult for computers to parse and look for looting. But if you see these two images here, First, we have this plane here, and then you look here, and by um, on Google Earth, you can drag a bar, and it t it'll go show you different pictures from different time periods. You can look for changes at sites, and so what she's challenging, um, citizen scientists, you could do this on your lunch break. Um, you can go and uh, sign into this, and then look at different sites and look for changes over time, and then report them if you see. I don't know if you can let me blow this up a little bit. You can see all the holes here. Those are all looting pits, and there are very, many, many fewer of them early on. So um, Google Earth is a boon for us archaeologists. Um, and uh, I know that, uh, like a lot of old timers, they would have found a site in recon before GPS days, kind of marked where it was on the map, and then never been able to find it again. Who can go to Google Earth and find it immediately and put a GPS location on it and give some poor, um, some poor graduate student a machete and a bottle of water and a GPS and say, go find it. Tell me what's there. It happens. So yeah, it's a very exciting uh, time for, no, sorry, sorry folks, uh, for we used to have to buy these satellite images, and now they're free. It's amazing. Now, remote sensing is basically aerial photography, but not using visible light. Remote sensing is just like aerial photography, but it's not using visual, visual or visible light. It uses all kinds of uh, invisible light, like uh, uh, radar or infrared. So we can talk about a couple different ones. Like um, Again, you don't have to know these different ones. Land, Sat, FLIR, F-L-I-R. Oops, can't spell, even though I'm spelling it out loud. Um, Landsat. Landsat is a infrared radiation uh, light satellite image, like we're looking at here. Um, basically, this is. It uses light that we can't see, infrared light, um, and it's usually done by NASA. And you have to ask them to point their, uh, point their uh, satellite. Uh, cameras at different places. So the different bits of infrared radiation correspond, like here and here, uh, to potential areas that you might want to check out because um, anthropogenic sites, sites made by humans, usually have a different signature. FLIR, um, so uh, Landsat is done by satellites. FLIR is, uh, stands for forward-looking infrared. Forward-looking infrared is 
also using infrared uh, image, but it's mounted on a plane, which I'm going to attempt to draw here really poorly. It's my, I don't know, very blocky plane. Um, there would be uh, an infrared camera mounted on the front of the plane, and it's looking forward, and then it flies back and forth, back and forth, back and forth over, um, over a, a site, and it will often pick up uh, different uh, things than we would be able to see with the naked eye. Um, and then we have um, SLAR. Uh, SLAR is sideways looking airborne radar. And this would be mounted on the side. And it would look out the side of the plane as it flies by. It would be looking down over here. And it bounces radio waves off of the, uh, off of the ground and back to the plane. Now the cool thing about this is Radar, right, it's a radio wave, and it bounces off of different objects in a different way. And so if um, we have, let's say, a forested terrain, very fancy photo or drawing of forested terrain, and then you have, say, some sort of pyramidal structure or something large, you might think that the radar would hit the trees and bounce off, and that's true. Um, and so a lot of what the plane is going to see is just the tops of the trees. However, some, a minority, of the X-ray, or excuse me, the radar will penetrate the uh, treetops because it's a, you know, kind of a permeable substance, and they'll bounce off of harder things. And so the first one that returns is the first return, and the second one that returns is the second return. And you can basically tune it to tune out that first return and concentrate only on the second return. So they have images now of flying over, say, Maya sites or other sites that are heavily forested, where they have made a map or a uh, basically a photographic representation of what the ground looks like with all the trees removed, which is awesome, uh, unless you're a tree. Uh, but it's great for archaeologists because now, instead of having to walk, and that was the traditional way of finding all these things, was walking and checking them out, um, you can fly over and get a pretty good sense of where all these buildings are. Um, this would be one of the representations with all the trees removed. So yeah, it's not perfect, but the nice thing is now they can geo-reference with uh, GPS points, all these different things, and then again you can equip a grad student with a machete and a bottle of water and a GPS unit and say, go check it out. All right. So the old way of doing this, doo -doo. oh, there's no sound. That's OK. So we would have to uh, basically walk. OK. I'm not talking to the camera. Anyway, so this was from my dissertation. We basically cut our, because I didn't have an airplane with sideways looking radar or anything like that. So we basically had to cut the one square kilometer area that we had reconned into 100 meter blocks, like a city block, basically. And then we had to walk through, lining up people every 10 meters, and then we would all walk through these blocks. And they were, you know, full of trees and bees and ants and thorns. And we had to look for buildings because we had to do it by hand. It wasn't quite as easy as uh, as flying over in a plane. So you can hear anything fun. Yeah. So that was years and years ago. Stop. Okay.
just to give you some places, I have friends who work in South America, and it's a high desert, and you can like see for kilometers, so it's a little different. It really depends where you are. Um, so now we're going to move into mapping, and here's that, that guy Dan again. So Dan is now mapping a structure that has been cleared. So when we find one of these structures, the guys work with machetes to clear all the brush off. And then Dan and Don here. Um, Let me pause this because they're about to get lewd. Because I told them I'm making a video so I can show classes, and they immediately start doing vulgar um, things. So this is a total station. I'll have a better picture of it later on. You've probably seen them around construction sites or whatever. Even when you drive by on the road, you'll see um, guys uh, or gals working with these. Uh, basically, all it is is a machine that measures the angle at which it has a small aperture like a telescope, and it measures the angle at which the unit is facing, the angle that the, um, the telescope is facing, and then it uses a laser to shoot between the unit and uh, what's called a stadia rod over here, and it bounces back. And the amount of time it takes tells it exactly how far that is. And by using trigonometry, which I'm sure all of us are super my absolute favorite, so if here's your little unit, and it knows the distance, and it knows the angle here, it can tell you where that location is in 3D space. Um, it's a pretty nifty little unit, and you can use it to map entire sites, and that's exactly what I ended up using it for. Um, yeah, yeah. Yep, sorry. So, oh, Dan, stop it. Okay. I just, there's nothing else in that video. Okay. Boop, boop, boop. So, that's how we do it now. Before this, we had to use um, chains and optical, non uh, electronic mapping equipment. Great. Uh, now, what we're getting is GPS that is really accurate to the sub decimeter level. So, within 10 centimeters, it's accurate. Um, and people are starting to map now just with a handheld GPS unit and a receiver, which is awesome because the total station relies completely on line of sight. Um, you can't map if you can't see. So in an area like where I worked, uh, you'd have to cut down a whole bunch of trees. And you know the environmentalist part of me was like, no, don't cut down all the trees. But then the next year I came back and they had grown back and then some. It's a really uh, verdant landscape where I work, so it wasn't um, really affecting the local landscape too much. However, we did not cut uh, trees that we knew to be kind of being um, overused, like um, cedar, or um, there's a special kind of tree that they use for carving. We wouldn't cut those down because we know that they were um, economically important and therefore had been overused uh, in recent years. Hmm. So we create two types of maps um, with the total station. One is topographical maps. And you see this here. These lines represent uh, an even area of elevation. So if you think about it like, let's say you're at a lake. And here's your lake. The lake level is going to be the same all the way around the lake. Then let's say there is a drought and the top foot of the water evaporates. Then if we drew the shoreline, 
that would be the shoreline. And let's say another foot goes away, and then that's the shoreline. Right? This is basic, the, basically the idea of a topographic map. Um, everywhere on this line is the same level, or the same height above sea level. And then as you move up one, this is going to be what's called the contour interval. And that gets set by the map maker. The contour interval shows you how far vertically between these lines. So you know if it's one foot in this case, um, in our example, uh, on this map it's uh, it's one meter. So for every one of these lines, boop boop boop, we're moving up in this case one meter. Um, and so you can tell that this is a hill, even though it's a one excuse me a two dimensional representation. It's showing a 3D surface. You can see the hill come up here and then go back down the other side. So that's topographic mapping. And the way we do that is actually kind of fun. I think it's kind of fun. We'll see. You guys are going to get to try it in a minute. Um, so what happens is we get our, if this was a map, and these were all points that were measured with the total station showing elevations, this would give us the base we need to make a topographic map. So right now it's just a blank sheet with a whole bunch of elevations that are geo-referenced or put in their place um, across. Now what happens is you decide on a contour interval, in this case it's three meters, and then say starting at 10 meters you're going to, you can see between 8 and 11 is a 10, so 10, between 10 and 12 is a 10, and then you follow, 10 over, and then the next one up is 13. But see here, there's no 13 between 11 and 15, so we have to extrapolate where's the 13. It's going to be, here's 12, here's 14, here's 13 in the middle, so we draw the line there. Where's 13 between these two? Well, it's a little closer to 12, so we draw the line there, and then so on. And so you extrapolate by estimating where these things are between them. We'll do that just now. Um, you guys can get to try it for yourselves. Because topographic maps are lots of fun. So um, I'm going to pass out in-class activity number one. Hooray! Um, you all have writing utensils. I'm going to turn the lights on so I can, since usually I'm able to project this onto the whiteboard, it's a lot easier for me to demonstrate. But since I don't have that, I had to draw out the top what I have up here on the board is this top right corner, top left corner. So if we're doing on there, so basically our, our goal is to make a topographic map in this area using these elevations. So in addition to topographic maps, um, we also make what are called planimetric maps. Planimetric maps are kind of a, they're an idealized drawing of what we think the buildings or whatever feature we're mapping would have looked like. So they are idealized. Topographic maps show you what is on the ground. They show you Gesundheit, Gesundheit. They show you the hills, they show you the mounds or the buildings or whatever. If there's a big pit in the middle of it where someone dug it out to, um, to loot it, that's mapped in there. Topographic map is a as accurate a representation of what exists today, right now, on the ground, as you can get. A planimetric map 
is an idealized map. And they are trying to represent, again, three dimensions on two dimensions. So there have to be some conventions. And these rectangles you see, with the smaller rectangles, kind of, uh, I guess you'd call them like jewel. If you were on um, some sort of drawing program, they might call them jewels or whatever. These are um, the way that we represent buildings because they are, we don't know if they were straight walled or mounded or anything like that, or pyramidal. But this is just a way to show the gen general height um, of these different buildings and things like that. Um, they are idealized. So we think that this is what the pyramid looked like and this is the stairway, but we don't know. The cool thing about them are, uh, at least in, you don't have to know this, but just to give you an idea, they're not just like artistic. They're still based on things like the distance between these two lines is the altitude of the pyramid. So here, that's about, I don't know, 12 meters. So that means it's a 12 meter high pyramid. So it's not just you know drawing, oh, here's a pyramid, so I'm going to draw it taller. This is an actual measurement. So it's based on the mapping points we've taken. And if you put underneath here a um, topographic map, it would, you'd see these same features, but they'd be a little more irregular, whereas these are all straight lines and they're all along the same orientation. So it's a bit of an interpretation on the archaeologist's part. And different archaeologists will draw buildings in different ways. So here's a close-up of that total station I was showing you before. Um, it's got that telescope and the laser um, and some pretty complex trigonometry. I, not that complex, but some uh, trigonometry going on to measure the distance and the angles from that machine, which has been georeferenced with a GPS unit to, get, uh, to tell that unit where it is in space. And then when it, when it looks and measures um, distances and angles, it can then put that all into a three-dimensional uh, map. GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems. Has anyone worked with GIS in another class or on their own ever? GIS? OK. Um, GIS is Geographic Information Systems. It's a really useful tool to look at spatial data. And by spatial data, I mean how things are arranged in space. On the coarsest level, GIS basically consists of a number of maps that are superimposed on one another. And so here we have counties. And then over that is a layer, where if you put that, if this was transparent and you put it down on top, it would show the dots on the county map, where there are Neolithic sites. So you could divide it up by counties. Or you could put the main roads, which seem to correspond to the county lines, or the different soil types. So you have all these different layers that have transparency that you put over each other. So you could maybe look and see, oh, let's compare Neolithic sites and soil types. Let's see if they're correlated. You could do that because you can isolate these two layers. You can even run um, software programs that say, all right, show me correlations between Neolithic sites and, say, soil types or show me Neolithic sites and they're not on the layer isn't here, but uh, rivers or, um, I don't know, current uh, iron ore locations, things like that. You can use GIS to query map information and look for correlations between what you're looking for, in this case, perhaps Neolithic sites, and what you know from other information like soil types.
really strong tool um, that we have. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.